Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast of the Grove Church where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that is deep but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have copies of the Bible Reading Plan available in the lobby every Sunday. Yes, and like always, we want to uh, hear from you guys. We want you to uh, ask us questions, email in questions, um, maybe that you would like to be answered about the Bible. Maybe it's a question about uh, context, just different things we want to hear from you. So you can email your questions to info at grove.church. Um, obviously, we're probably not going to be able to get to every single question every single week, but we will do our best and we want to hear from you. Absolutely. Well, this week we're going to kick off with a book that we started last week in the sense of it was part of last week's readings, but we wanted to save it for this week because um, it truly is one of the most interesting books of the Bible in terms of the themes that it covers and also the structure around the story itself. And that is the book of Job. Pronounced Job, not Job. Not Job. Job, J-O-B, is part of the poetry and wisdom literature of the Bible. So that's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Uh, We call them the wisdom and poetry books because they're all written as poetry and they provide wisdom. So we we went with creative names for that one. Just call it what it is. Call it what it is. (laughs) It deals with the story of a man who loses everything and his struggles with reconciling his loss with his faith in God. And that's what we were saying when we talk about the book of Job handles incredibly mature themes and and it tackles incredibly hard questions. So last week, if you'll remember, we read about how Job's essentially in in the span of a very short amount of time, he loses everything that he owns. He loses all of his children and his wife even tells him to curse God and die. And he's really at the lowest point that he's ever going to be at. And And I think it's so easy for us today to read the Bible with the ending in mind and not put ourselves into the lives of these characters. Obviously, Job doesn't know what's coming. Job doesn't know that he's a Bible character. All that Job is aware of right now is that he's lost everything, that his life has been devastated, and that up until this moment, he has done his absolute best to love and serve God, and yet it ends with tragedy, or at least tragedy has struck. Job is a deeply philosophical book that deals with these hard questions. Now, the poetic portion of Job can be really hard to read. I remember being a kid, we would get through the narrative where it's just kind of telling you what happened. I'd get through that part easy, and then we'd get to the poetry, and that would be a little bit more difficult. And so what we want to do today is show you how it's structured so that you can better read through everything and then just kind of break down the first structure, if you will, the first cycle of the book of Job to make it easier to understand. So in the story, Job lost everything. His friends come to comfort him. And his friends, sometimes they get a bad rap. A lot of times uh, we look at Job's friends and we just demonize them. But here's the reality of what's going on. All of these men are struggling with the question of, How is this morally an upright man, uh, this person that everyone knows loves God with all of his heart, why are these incredibly tragic things happening to him? They're all wrestling with that question. They're all wrestling it with, with it in different ways. So the way it will work, though, is Job will say something, and he'll say it in a very poetic nature. He is then followed by his friend Eliphaz. Eliphaz will say something, and then Job will reply to that. And then Job's other friend Bildad will speak, again, followed by Job. Finally, 
he'll have his friend Zophar speak, and then Job's reply to that third friend will start a new cycle. So it always works that way. It's it's an easier way to break down the book of Job so that we can kind of take a look at what's coming. And before we jump into the the scripture for this week, we want to take a, a short little minute or two to talk about the question that everybody has when reading this book. It's why do bad things happen to good people? Um, if we're not careful, we can take this question and we can read the entire book of Job through this uh, lens. And the reality is we need to have a proper way of reading scripture so that when we do come to portions of scripture such as this, we can actually interpret them properly. Absolutely. Uh, so often, I mean, we even hear this in culture. Why do bad things happen to good people? Somebody, you know, passes away, maybe in a tragic car accident or, or some, some other way. And all their friends is we don't understand. They were such a good person. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I want us to look at this through the lens of a later part of scripture, uh, through the apostle Paul in Romans chapter three, uh, he states very explicitly that first off, none of us are good. He actually, he actually says, uh, not one is righteous. And then he goes on to say, for all have fallen short of the glory of God because we've sinned. And because of that, we need to understand that as humans, we have a sinful nature. And so if we were perfect, um, you know, even if we were perfect, it doesn't make us exempt from tragedy. I mean, my goodness, look at uh, this one guy named Jesus in the scriptures. <laughs> he, he had a lot of tragedy happen to him through his entire life, people abandoning him, and he ultimately gets crucified. Now, luckily, he was our savior and rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven. But the question, why do good thing or why do bad things happen to good people? Um, I think it's kind of an immature way to look at scripture and, and honestly, even a kind of an immature way to look at life. Yeah. The, the, promise of the Bible is not that we become Christians and bad things stop stop happening. The promise of the Bible is that when we have relationship with God, he's with us through the bad times. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a that's a powerful message that we're going to talk about in the book of Job. Yeah. And uh, so starting out in chapter three, Job expresses uh, his pain over his loss. Uh, and then chapters four through five deal with Eliphaz. Uh, he tells Job that the people who are innocent don't suffer in this way. Uh, but as we just discussed, we realize that people who do good things still suffer. Uh, yeah, there's and- this there's this theme. Sorry to interrupt you, but there's this theme that a lot of the Job's friends have that's almost close to to karma. Like if you act well, then good things are going to happen to you. If you act poorly, then bad things are going to happen to you. And again, like you said, it's, it's it's almost an immature way of looking at life that tragedy strikes people who are living for God and people who aren't living to God. It rains on everyone, I guess, is another way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. And what what I think is interesting in this is these men who are supposed to be uh, Job's really close friends, um, he infers, uh, Eliphaz infers that, uh, well, obviously you've done something to incur this wrath upon yourself, Mm -hmm. which makes the picture of God in this man's life look like it's based on what he can offer God, not what God has offered him. And if we're not careful, I'm sure a lot of us can slip into that type of theology as well of saying, okay, I need to make sure I do all the right things so God doesn't get mad at me. Sure. Yeah. And then um, in chapter six through seven, Job replies to what he said. And he says that he's done nothing wrong to deserve this punishment. He then clearly uh, in in the depths of his depression wishes that God would kill him. Mm-hmm. which is insane to think about this guy who we hail as a hero in the Bible. He's at the lowest of the low points. Job deals with a lot of 
anxiety, depression. Yet so often uh, when it comes to like these real world issues of anxiety, depression, whatever, we kind of skip over Job. We kind of go to other encouraging verses, but this is a man who's lost everything, whose friends are now telling him, you must have deserved this. And now he's literally asking God, God, please heal me. Just end his life. Yeah. And it's, again, it's so important to think about how would I feel in that situation? Um, I don't have children right now, but I'm married. Like, how would I feel if in one day my apartment burned down, all of my stuff was gone, my wife was gone? I, I, I think it's so easy to assume that, like, we wouldn't slip in to those types of, into that depth of depression. But here's Job wrestling through not just the philosophical questions of why did these things happen, but also wrestling through the pain of losing his children and losing everything that he owns. Yeah. Chapter eight continues with another one of his friends, uh, Bildad. He tells Job that uh, he should repent of whatever sin he must have committed to deserve this tragedy. So once again, we see this whole picture of um, you must have done something to incur this wrath upon yourself. In chapters 9 through 10, Job replies again by saying he does not know of what he could be hiding. He's like, he's like, trust me, if I knew what was wrong, I would be fixing it. I'm losing everything. And he doesn't understand how he could even argue his case before God. In chapter 11, uh, Zophar tells Job, how dare you question God because you probably deserve worse. Um, another encouraging friend comes along <laughs> and decides to uh, try to answer this question for him. Um, but really, in these sections, we see Job and all of his friends wrestling with answering why God would allow tragedy to strike Job. You're right. In the coming weeks, God does end up replying to Job, and we're going to dive deeper into a lot of those questions. So stay tuned for that. It's um. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture when God eventually does reply to Job and it's all of the truth that is in there that is not just applicable to his situation, but it's also applicable to us today. Uh, that's it for the Old Testament this week. We'll be sticking in Job. Uh, but in the New Testament, we're going through the book of Luke and we're going through the book of Revelation. One thing I wanted to highlight in the book of Luke this week, we're, we're covering a lot of the ministry of Jesus. We're seeing miracles. We're seeing him do these incredible things. But I think it's really fitting to focus on this moment called the transfiguration. And so the disciples are with Jesus at this point. He's got his full his full crew and they're witnessing him doing all of these miracles. And they're beginning to see that Jesus isn't just a teacher. Jesus isn't just a prophet, but he's something more. And eventually uh, Jesus asks, who am I? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Or in other words, you are the Messiah. And it's immediately followed by this interesting passage where Jesus tells his disciples that he's not the Messiah that they expect him to be. Now, Jesus is the true Messiah. I'm not saying that. But what they probably were thinking is that the Messiah would be a a military leader who would overthrow Rome. He would bring Israel back to being its own independent nation. He would be the king. It would be this glorious moment. And it's interesting that Jesus... Right after Peter declares that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, he tells his disciples that he's going to suffer and die. He tells them that the way he is going to save is not going to be the way that they think. Yeah, I think this part of scripture is one of my favorites because we kind of get a glimpse into uh, maybe even deeper of what people thought this Messiah that had been prophesied from years and years before was going to be. We see that in, in, as we talked last week, the, the Roman culture that was put over the Israel people, the Jewish people, they hated Rome. 
their entire thing uh, was, we just got to make it through this season because one day our Savior will come and free us from Rome. But Jesus wasn't here to free them uh, from political oppression. He was freeing them from spiritual oppression. But it was something they didn't see. And it was something they weren't even expecting. And so because of that, um, it kind of gives you a bigger picture of even why the Jewish religious system didn't like Jesus. It wasn't just that he was saying things that might have been a little contrary to what they were speaking. It was actually deeper than that because they were saying, no, this can't be our Messiah because our Messiah is going to free us from Rome. They had a limited vision of God's plan for their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, and right after that moment where Jesus begins to explain what's truly going to happen to him, we get this moment called the transfiguration. So Jesus goes to the mountain, uh, says that he just goes to the top of the mountain to pray, and he takes with him uh, the three closest disciples. So we always see in scripture that Peter, James, and John are with Jesus at crucial moments, and this is one of the first of those. And I think... I think for this, it's just fitting to read scripture and we'll talk a little bit about it afterwards, but it's such a beautiful passage of the Bible. I, di- I didn't want to miss out. And so in Luke chapter nine, starting in verse 29, it says this, and as he was praying, that being Jesus, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. It's just wow. Like, I love that picture. I wish, if there's any moment in the Bible I wish I could be there for, it's probably this one. But Jesus is revealing to his disciples, he's revealing to Peter, James, and John, really who he truly is. And we get this beautiful picture of Moses and Elijah being with Jesus. And in a sense, under Jesus, showing them that he's greater than, if, if especially in, at this time period, if you're a Jewish person, you're thinking, who are the great heroes of faith? It's, it's Moses and Elijah. Those people are the big deals. Uh, probably King David thrown in there as well. And Jesus is above all of them. And then we get this confirmation, not just that Jesus is the Messiah, not just that Jesus is a great teacher or a great man, but really that he is the son of God. When God himself says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And everything that we get from before this in the book of Luke and everything we get going forward is remembering the fact that the disciples are now starting to understand that they're not just serving a rabbi, they're not just serving a teacher, but they're serving God in the flesh. Yeah. And as we see this transfiguration, as Jesus is kind of stepping into his glory, uh, especially in the disciples' eyes, I think it's a fitting transition as we talk about uh, Revelation one more time, as we're going to highlight what's called the glory of the throne room. Uh, This was yesterday's reading, but I thought it was important for us to let this scene uh, kind of frame the rest of the book for us. Um, Just give us a lens on which to view the rest of Revelation. Um, In this, John is shown a a vision of the 
the throne room of God, and we see a picture of how they, uh, how truly awesome God is. And angels fly around the throne of God singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this is a picture of what eternity is to be like. Is a, It's basically us just giving reverence to God. Um, I love this passage. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Yeah, I just think there's some passages of the Bible that are just so beautiful. And, and oftentimes what they're talking about is, is who God is. And it's so easy for us to, I think even in, in modern times, Christianity has been around for so long that it's just almost, it's it's easy to be a cultural Christian. It's easy to think of it as heritage and to not really appreciate the absolute holiness of God. And as you're reading through Revelation, pay attention to some of the imagery that's used. I, I love the idea that uh, reading in verse five from chapter four, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder. And before the throne, there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. It's just this imagery that shows that God has control over all of creation. He's using creation in ways that we would never even think possible. Even today, there's some of these things that we would struggle to build. And, and, and the idea behind it is the fact that God is so holy, that God is so incredible, that we as his creation can do nothing else but worship him, mm-hmm. can do nothing else but glorify him. And as we see moving through the book of Revelation, I've heard it said, and I love it this way, all people are going to glorify God in one way or the other. And, and we see the picture in Revelation, some people will glorify God because we receive his mercy because we love God. We're, we have relationship with him and he shows his mercy. And then some people glorify God uh, through his demonstration of justice, which is obviously not, not the way that we want it to happen. But at the end of the day, there is no way to escape this life without bringing glory to the one who deserves ultimate glory. Yeah. And once again, as we're reading Revelation, we mentioned last week, um, don't get caught up in the details. Just read it for what it is. Take the inherent truth out of the scripture, and that's what we apply to our life. Like we said before, it's not a calendar. Um, you know, things like this, they're visions. Um, and so for us to even say, like, uh, they're going to happen exactly like this, I think would be wrong because we need to do interpretation, have a true biblical interpretation in this. And you know what? Sometimes that means we don't have the answer. So it's best to not be black and white where the Bible is gray at best. Yeah, I've, I've always said, it's it's wrong to try and make vague the things which the Bible makes clear, but it's also wrong to try and make clear the things which the Bible leaves vague. There's a lot of things in Revelation that God purposely leaves vague just to kind of give us shadows of what to come, but he's not giving us uh, the exact calendar. He's not giving us the exact descriptions of everything. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Let's Read the Bible. We are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast at the Grove Church. If you would like to check out everything that we offer, you can visit our website at grove.church. Next week, we'll be in week three of the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We can't wait to talk to you then.